and welcome to the Advancements in Forensics podcast. In today's episode, we will take a look at a new improved way to examine, examine soil called predictive soil provenancing, or PSP, that replaces empirical soil provenancing, also known as ESP, how it could have helped with the Ted Bundy case, and where these two things intersect. Empirical soil provenancing, or as we will now refer to it as ESP, is multidimensional information contained in the evidentiary's soil's geochemistry, mineralogy, biology, bulk properties, and more, is compared to either purposefully acquired or pre-existing knowledge. Knowledge typically is derived from soil geochemical surveys and stored in databases containing the same or similar multidimensional information over the region of interest and an appropriate density. Geochemical surveys come in many shapes and sizes, and although many already exist at a range of spatial scales, sampling densities, and sampling media selections, forensics applications have specification requirements that may not have been the primary focus of the original surveys. What are the steps of ESP? Once a database is selected, a number of statistical and visualization analysis tools are typically implemented. The next step in the ESP workflow is the comparison of the evidentiary soil samples composition with the selected database. This analysis of similarity can be done using a few or many compositional characteristics, their ratios or other calculated indexes, correlation analyses, and or factor principle component analysis, among others. Finally, the evidentiary sample is ascribed to a particular region of origin, and conventional forensics investigations can start there. If it is unsuccessful or inconclusive, more data and better data may be needed to collect it, which may imply undertaking more refined soil surveys or rely on other independent information. Where ESP cannot work is information from geochemical surveys may not always be available at a suitable density or quality over a region of potential investigation. Designing and implementing geochemical surveys can take time and commitment. Thus, if soil provenancing is to rely solely on empirical approach, it will likely be limited unless a crime is committed in an area covered by a suitable geochemical survey. What are the methods and materials of PSP? Recently, digital soil grids have become available for whole countries or even continents, such as in Europe, the United States, Africa, or as global compilations. In Australia, national grids of soil attributes have been released by the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization and partner organizations within the Tesseracial Ecosystem Research Network. Network, which is supported by the Australian government through the National Collaborative Research Infrastructure Strategy. The innovation idea developed is that in the absence of suitable empirical databases of soil properties on which the base soil provenancing, these grids offer a possible alternative. This approach may provide a transparent, reproducible, and objective framework for guiding investigational priorities. The PSP method was tested by determining the provenance area for hypothetical evidentiary soil samples having the property values. They explicitly accounted for confidence limits around those values by applying a search range instead of a single value for each soil value. These search ranges are considered a reflect 
conservative confidence limit brackets, which were adopted for four reasons. First, they are meant to include sample collection, preparation, and analysis errors, as well as the moduling, moduling uncertainty. Secondly, they include the error, error associated with comparing data from representative soil geochemical survey samples with often imperfect forensic evidentiary samples. Thirdly, it is considered that allowing wide search ranges or slack conditions will deliver a more convincing test for and demonstration of the utility of the novel technique. Fourth, this conservative approach minimizes the occurrence of false negatives. During testing, it was found that any condition taken individually only reduced the search area between 620,000 kilometers squared and 320,000 kilometers squared of the initial area. When combined, the search area decreased significantly to only 67,000 kilometers squared, or about 8.4% of the initial area. A validation test was performed on three space soil samples, which reflect a range of soil types and textures. The samples came from the uppermost part of the soil profiles to mimic material that would be transferred to a shoe, tire, or digging implement and also be compatible with the 0 to 5 centimeter depth range represented by soil attribute rasters used in the test. Samples were collected as 3 to 5 subsamples, composited together to give the sample more representative of each area. In each case, a sample of 100 grams or more was homogenized and rifle split down to the size required for analysis to a few grams. These samples were independent of the data set used to create the soil attribute grids and to con compensate for closure affecting the textural data, the sand values were ignored. Also, total nitrogen co concentration was not measured, leaving four attributes available for PSP analysis validation. The lower and upper limits of the search ranges were made to reflect average uncertainties for areas of interest. The match criteria for the validation sample search ranges relative to the raster's uncertainty envelopes were calculated according to a raster op operation. In all cases, the pixel where each sample originated from was correctly identified by PSP for all four variables. Considering that only four variables were used and the total P was determined on finer grain size fraction than is represented by the soil attribute rasters, the results are very encouraging. The PSP method is very effective at narrowing down search area to regions of initial investigation area are more likely to match within analytical confidence limits and module uncertainties, the properties of the evidentiary soil sample. It does, however, rely on availability of sufficient material for the relevant analysis, some of which are destructive. If additional forensic evidence comes at hand, such as knowledge of a limited travel radius or DNA suggesting specific ecosystem environment, the area to be searched for forensic evidence could be reduced even more. There are some unfortunate downsides to PSP techniques for some forensics cases where it may be necessary to consider the integrity of the evidentiary soil sample. For instance, evidentiary soil sample collected from a car tire or sole of a shoe may be altered compositionally due to the variable transferability of the different grain size fractions of soils. 
Therefore, in future applications, they suggest it may be more appropriate to use silt and clay fractions, possibly ratioed to each other, rather than the sand fraction, if loss of coarse particles during transfer is suspected. When applied to forensics cases, the soil attribute rasters for which analytical value has been obtained, or can be obtained, from the soil sample should be used. Therefore, there should be no need to pick and choose selection of rasters, which could potentially bias the outcome. It is noted that the size of search area cannot be increased by including another attribute and its associated search conditions. It can only be preserved or reduced. Therefore, using as many soil properties as possible is recommended to not only avoid bias, but get the most effective reduction in size of search area. In conclusion, comparing the traditional ESP approach to the PSP method, the PSP method has the advantages of being applicable to whole countries or even continents, having a high spatial resolution, and being transparent, reproducible, and objective. There are main limitations, on the other hand, that rasters are currently available only for selected bulk soil attributes, which may uh, differ from those measured on typical forensic samples. The product of modeling, which although conducted as in a rigorous manner possible, still only delivers representation of reality based on data mining and partially reliant on analytical methods that may require large, large samples or be destructive. The future work developing PSP is suggested to test the robustness of the method. Application to a real forensics case would highlight any limitations available to the forensics analysis in comparison with samples collected during geochemical surveys and come up with further recommendations for the PSP. Collaboration with digital soil mapping communities could also result in new soil attribute rasters and that can be obtained small samples or non-destructive analytical techniques. The PSP method for determining likely origin of evidentiary soil samples is underpinned by the high-resolution soil attribute grids recently released, for instance, in Australia. These grids were derived from the CSIRO using data mining. These simple raster operations in an open source geographical information system allow for rapid selection of pixels that satisfy any number of compositional conditions. In the absence of geochemical soil surveys and a sufficient density and or for sufficient quali quality, PSP method offers a transparent, reproducible, and objective alternative based on the best available scientific data, process, and knowledge. Next, Sarah will be talking about the Ted Bundy case. Now on to the Ted Bundy case, with a few other cases as well. Ted Bundy is one of the most known serial killers to this day. Bundy's good looks, charming character, and prestigious law studies aided him in attracting women to him. From there, he set out to kill. Bundy is said to be responsible for 40 murders, typically young women, between 1964 and 1978. His victims were not limited to one area, but rather stretched from the Pacific Northwest, California, Utah, Idaho, Colorado, and Florida. Bundy typically used either a blunt instrument or means of strangulation to murder his victims. 
things only got worse from there. He sexually assaulted his victims both before and after murdering them. Bundy was convicted in 1976 in Utah on a kidnapping charge. Bundy was extradited to Colorado on a murder charge when, unfortunately, he escaped. From there, Bundy went on to murder more young women in Tallahassee, Florida at Florida State University, and also a 12-year-old girl a few weeks later. Bundy was finally arrested while driving a stolen car. One of the victims received a bite mark from Bundy. A forensic odontologist used bite mark analysis to ultimately convict Bundy of murder. He was later executed. Many forms of forensic analysis were brought together to bring justice to the victims of Ted Bundy. Our main focus is on forensic geology. Ted Bundy left the bodies of many of his victims in the outdoors where soil was present. As our advancement is based on the findings of soil, it could have helped tremendously throughout the Ted Bundy killing spree. Forensic geology and PSP could have provided information on some of the bodies found. Soil was taken from some victims who were found in mountainous areas. The soil could then have been used in the advancement we are studying, PSP, to determine if the bodies had been moved from previous locations. One prime example of when our advancement could have been used was when Ted Bundy was stopped and arrested due to the suspicion of burglary. It is important to give more background information on this stop and the events that happened both before and after the stop. A young woman named Carol Duranch who was 18 and survived an attack by Bundy on November 8, 1974, went to police about the attack that she experienced. Bundy falsely told Carol that he was a police officer and that her car had been broken into and that he needed to take her to the police station. Bundy then attempted to handcuff her at that time. Carol noticed that nothing was missing from the car, that the man smelled like alcohol, and that he was not driving a police vehicle but was driving a Volkswagen Bug. At the time, she saw warning signs, but noticed that the badge that Bundy held looked realistic. For that reason, Carol got into his car and they left. Bundy then pulled over near an elementary school, which confused Carol. She then noticed that the handle on the passenger door was not accessible. She instantly grew suspicious and started to panic. Bundy then cuffed one of her wrists, pulled out a gun, and threatened to kill her. Luckily, Carol managed to continually fight Bundy off, open the door, and then escape. Just a few hours later, Bundy killed another woman out of rage. Bundy was arrested a short time after he had attempted to kidnap Carol. The arrest came after Bundy was pulled over for, driving a, vi- for a driving violation. Bundy's Volkswagen was searched and many pieces of evidence were found. These items included handcuffs, an ice pick, a crowbar, pantyhose, and a mask. The police also discovered that the front seat of the passenger side of the car was missing. Police were suspicious and arrested Bundy on suspicion of burglary. The things that Carol described to police that were in the car of her attacker aligned with the stuff that was found in Bundy's car that day. The handcuffs that Carol described matched the handcuffs that were found in Bundy's car as well. Carol was also able to pick Bundy out of a lineup. That is the background story of the unfortunate incident that happened to Carol Duranch. Our advancement that we have been studying, known as PSP, could have played a large role in breaking this case sooner. When police originally pulled over Bundy and arrested him on suspicion of burglary, 
and then contacted Carol because his description matched her description of her attacker. Police could have attempted to find soil samples from Bundy, his car, or the items in his car. Bundy killed many people and left their bodies in the outdoors where soil is present. If police had attempted to find soil samples from either him, his car, or the items in his car, then they could have used the soil samples in the advancement PSP. It is likely that soil could have been found on at least one of the areas mentioned above. The soil then could have been used to narrow down certain locations where Bundy once was. This could have helped to lead investigators in the right direction. If PSP was able to lead investigators to a site where a body was found, then investigators would be able to link Bundy to bodies found in those areas. Another victim of Bundy's, known as Melanie Cooley, age 18, died on April 15, 1975. Melanie disappeared while on her way home from her high school. It was determined that Melanie was tied up and bludgeoned with a rock. Her body was then found in Coal Creek Canyon. Although it has never been confirmed that Melanie was a victim of Bundy, most people believe that she is. PSP and soil samples from the rock, Bundy's belongings, or his car could have been used to gather more information about the Melanie Cooley death. Samples from the rock could have been used to determine if Melanie was killed at the location that her body was found. If soil samples were found on Bundy or any of his belongings, then they could possibly link Bundy to the crime definitively. PSP has the ability to change forensic science in ways unimaginable. This advancement enables forensic scientists to take soil samples from a person, object, or scene, and these samples, along with PSP, have the ability to locate where the soil has come from. This is beneficial for linking a perpetrator to a crime discovering a crime, and whether a body has been moved from one location to another. Another case that could have benefited from the use of PSP is the case of the Hillside Stranglers. The Hillside Stranglers were originally believed to be just one perpetrator. The police were eventually able to discover that there were two perpetrators based on the investigations of the bodies found. The police chose to withhold this information from the public. The two perpetrators are named Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Bueno Jr. The two killers developed their name because many of the victims' bodies were found on hills in the greater Los Angeles area. One killing in particular would have benefited from PSP. Judith Miller was a victim of the Hillside Stranglers. On November 1, 1977, Judith's body was found on a parkway in a middle-class residential area. She was face-up and naked. The police determined that her body had been dumped there after the killing. Soil samples from Judith Miller could have helped to determine where she was before the killings. They could have helped to determine where she was before her attackers approached her and where her attackers took her. Investigators were eventually able to determine that the Hillside Stranglers picked her up on the side of the road by portraying themselves as police officers. They then took her to their upholstery shop where they killed her. If PSP had been used when the body was found, investigators may have been able to find out this information much sooner. They also could have been able to link the perpetrators to the crime much earlier than they did. Another victim of the Hillside Stranglers is named Christina Weckler. 
On November 20, 1977, the body of Christina was found by hikers on a hillside between Glendale and Eagle Rock. Her body was found naked, with ligature marks on her wrist, ankles, and neck. She had bruises on her breasts and blood coming from her rectum. There were two puncture marks on her arm, and it was later discovered that she was injected with Windex. PSP could have helped to determine where Christina was killed. Was she killed at that location or somewhere else? Where was Christina before the killing? PSP has the ability to answer these questions to a T. Next, I want to read to you all two articles that help to show the importance of forensic geology and how far it goes to solve crimes. The following is an excerpt from the website 10 Grizzly Historical Murderers Caught Thanks to Forensics by Radu Alexander. Knowing who the killer is and being able to prove it are two very different things. In 1908, German authorities would not have been able to convict the killer of Margaret Filbert without the pioneering geoforensics work of scientist George Pop. Filbert's headless body was found on May 30th in a field near Falkenstein Valley in Bavaria. Many pointed the finger at a local farmer and poacher with a violent temper named Andreas Schlinger. Police found traces of human blood on his clothes and under his fingernails, but this was not enough to prove that he was guilty. His rifle, ammo, and a pair of trousers were found nearby in an abandoned castle. According to testimony, Chichler's wife cleaned his shoes the night before the murder. The farmer said he hadn't been to the scene of the crime or the castle since then. In fact, he claimed he had only walked his own fields and therefore only soil from his property should have been present on his shoes. Pop proved this was a lie. The three regions all had quite distinctive soil. The earth at the scene of the crime was rich in decomposed red sandstone, angular quartz, and fergonious clay. The soil from the castle contained coal and brick dust from crumbling walls. Chichler's farmland was rich in mica, porphyry, and milky quartz. On the suspect's shoes, Pop found soil from the first two areas, but not the third. Moreover, he found brown and purple fibers, which he matched to the victim's skirt. A jury found Chichler guilty, which prompted his confession. As you can see, soil can play a large role in determining who a killer is and placing a killer at a murder scene. This case happened a long time ago, and obviously technology was not prominent and advanced like it is today. Thankfully, with the introduction of PSP, cases like this one can be solved by pinpointing a certain area where soil comes from. Early studies of soil were effective, but imagine how much more effective studies of soil in terms of forensics can be now that PSP has been introduced. I will read one more article on how forensic geology is beneficial and how PSP can provide more information about a case. This article is written by David Bresson and is titled Forensic Geology in the Murder Case of Aldo Moro. In Rome, on March 16, 1978, a car of the type Fiat 128 suddenly hit the brakes in the middle of the street, prompting the following cars to crash into it. A series of shots from a machine gun followed, killing all of the five bodyguards of Italian Prime Minister Aldo Moro. The Prime Minister was kidnapped. Days later, the first messages 
from the Brigate Rosse, a terrorist association active at the time in Italy, arrived, causing a severe political crisis as the government was insecure on how to deal with the terrorists' demands. Time passed, letters and messages were exchanged, when on May 8th, an anonymous telephone call signaled a parked car of the type Renault 4 in the center of Rome. Inside the car, the police found Aldo Moro, killed by a series of gunshots. Investigators immediately started to collect crime scene evidence. During the autopsy, small traces of sand were found inside Moro's trouser cuffs. Traces of geological material were also collected from the shoes and the trunk of the car where the body was found. The forensic geologist had to answer two important questions. Could the geological evidence be tracked back to the site where Moro was killed or his body dumped into the car? Could the, ge the geological evidence suggest an approximate time for when this happened? The chemical composition of the sand grain was analyzed. So this may be able to identify the rocks from where the grains eroded. The grain shape and size distribution could help to identify the depositional environment of the sand. All the sand from Morrow's clothing, as far as from the interior of the car, was identical, suggesting that the body was dumped into the car where Morrow was killed, or at least imprisoned. It was loose sand without cement between the single grains, so it was clear that it was not derived from an older sandstone. Of uniform gray size, very well sorted. The grains were also smoothed and rounded by constant abrasion, like it happens by the constant motion of waves. It was so easy to identify the material as recent beach sand. This identification was supported by the presence of marine shells and microfossils. The remains of marine organisms living in shallow water suggested that Moro was killed or imprisoned during his last days somewhere along the coastline near Rome. The microfossils were identified as Miocene species, eroded from rock outcrops not found along the coastline and transported by a river to the sea. This was an important discovery as it suggested that the supposed crime site was located near the delta of the river Tiber the only river with a drainage basin where Miocene rocks were found. Also, some grains of igneous rocks recovered from the shoes and eroded and transported from the volcanic hills surrounding the city of Rome supported this hypothesis. Subsequent sampling showed that sand from an 11-kilometer-long segment situated north of the mouth of the Tiber matched the sand found on Moro's clothing. There were only few streets in the area, and indeed traces of asphalt were found on the tires of the car. However, more careful analysis revealed that the asphalt was of very poor quality in comparison with sand samples revealed that it was, in fact, unrefined bitumen derived from the pollution of a nearby oil tanker terminal, washed ashore and mixed into the sand. Traces of this kind of bitumen were then found also inside the car. Moro's kidnappers walked on the contaminated sand, not long before the car was found, as the smears of bitumen were still fresh. The last observation suggested that Mora was killed shortly before the telephone call and the discovery of the body. More closer investigation showed that on the shoes below the layer of beach and sand, there was also a layer of volcanic soil. Applying the principle of sedimentary superposition, as the soil layer is covered by the sand, it must be older, the forensic geologist suggested that Moro was imprisoned before being re relocated to the shore, somewhere inland, maybe southeast of Rome, where on easily erodible volcanic rocks 
clay-rich soils formed over time. Pollen grains supported this reconstruction as the pollen in the sand came from cypress and hazel blooming late in winter, but there was no trace of plants blooming in early spring. Only years later, the investigators found an apartment in the southeastern suburbs of Rome where Morrow probably was hold, held captive for some time. Various suspected murders were arrested during a raid against the Brigate Rosé. Based on various partial confessions, the crime was reconstructed. That is the conclusion of that article. In a case like this one, PSP could have been used to determine where the different types of soils and minerals came from. This could have aided investigators greatly. Obviously, forensic geology played a large role in this case, and if PSP were available at the time, investigators could have reached many conclusions much faster. To conclude, there were many cases in the past, ones in the future, and some that are happening now that could really benefit from the use of PSP. Thank you, host Emily and Sarah, for the key points and information you have provided. I am Madison, the last host of this podcast, and now it is time for me to bisect this podcast and give more information on the behalf of the other hosts. Now, I will be introducing what forensic geology is. Forensic geology, which is also known as geoforensics, is the analysis of soil evidence to help solve crimes and the study of evidence relating to minerals, oils, petroleum, and other materials found in or incorporated into the earth. Such evidence found at a crime scene can be definitively incriminating in the hands of experts. Soil samples from footwear or vehicle footwells can demonstrate a clear timeline of the movements of suspects and their vehicles, making a lie of their state alibi locations and tying them into a crime scene. A geologist which expertise in forensic soil examination could be the best chance to solve a murder when the only evidence is grain of sand or potting soil on the suspect's shoe. In general, the field of forensic geoscience involves criminal and civil investigations, utilizing the disciplines of geology, geomorphology, botany, biology, and statistics. When doing a criminal-slash-legal case, forensic geologists are more specifically concerned with soils that have been disturbed or moved, usually by human activity. Then they compare their evidence to natural soils, or matching them with soil databases, to help locate the scene of crimes. As Emily hit on the advancements, geology forensics use instruments and methods common to the profession of geology, such as binocular microscopes, petrographic microscopes, x-ray diffraction, scanning electron microscopes, and microchemical analysis. Sometimes, forensic geologists cannot come to any conclusions. This could be because 1. No transfer took place. 2. There was a transfer, but evidence was later removed. three. Two or more types of evidence were transferred, like from two separate areas, resulting in a composite sample, or four, the environment of the area under investigation changes rapidly and the sampling was inadequate. All subdisciplines of geosciences 
have potential forensic applications, but sedimentology, mineralogy, petrology, geochemistry, paleontology, and geophysics have so far made the greatest contributions. How can forensic geology relate to soil? Forensic scientists must first determine if uncommon and unusual particles or unusual combinations of particles occur in the soil samples and must then compare them with similar soil in a known location. To do this properly, the soil must be systematically described and characterized using standard soil testing methods to find out whether a sample can be used as evidence. Methods for characterizing soils for a forensic comparison involve subdividing methods into two major stages, descriptive and analytical. Mud recovered from a killer's vehicle can direct a search for a missing body and help to secure a murder conviction. And geophysical techniques commonly used in archaeology can be de deployed to reveal clandestine burials. The transfer of soil evidence is governed by what has been known as the Locard's Exchange Principle. This principle that all of you should be familiar with states that whether one or two objects come into contact, there is always a transfer of material. The methods of detection may not always be sensitive enough to demonstrate this, or the decay rate may be so rapid that all evidence of transfer has vanished after a given time. Nonetheless, the transfer has taken place. Traces of rock, sediment, soil, and dust can be present on a whole variety of items of interest, but amongst those items most frequently submitted to the crime laboratory for examination are footwear, clothing, vehicles, flooring materials, digging implements, washing machine filters, polythene bags in which items have been stored, <clears throat> firearms, and knives. Samples associated with the human body are also sometimes subject to examination. These include tapings of the skin, fingernail scrapings, washings from the hair, nasal passages, trachea and lungs, contents of gastrointestinal tract, and feces. Forensic soil provenancing, a subdiscipline within forensic geology, can be defined as the capability to spatially constrain the likely region of origin of an evidentiary sample of earth-related material. With the advancement of PSP, predictive soil provenancing approach, soil being a common evidence type used in forensic and intelligent operations, soil composition databases are lacking or inadequate. They propose to use publicly available soil attribute rasters to reduce forensic search areas. Soil attribute rasters, which have been recently become widely available at high spatial resolutions, typically three arc seconds, are predictive models of the distribution of soil properties derived from data mining the interrelationships between these properties and several environmental varieties. Each soil attribute raster is searched for pixels that satisfy the compositional conditions of the evidentiary soil samples. We showed through an example that the search area 
for an evidentiary soil sample can be reduced to less than 10% of the original, original investigation area. This predictive soil provenancing approach is a transparent, reproducible, and objective method of efficiently and effectively reducing the likely provenance area of forensic soil samples. A question that comes to mind is how did forensic geology get started? Well, the application of geology and soil science to criminal and legal investigations started in the late 19th century with increasing de developments in crime lab technology. An important development for both geology and forensic science occurred in 1828 when William Nicol, a Scottish physicist, mineralogist, and lecturer at the University of Edinburgh invented the polarizing light microscope, one of the most key tools for identification of geological materials. Nickel also developed a method for preparing geologic specimens by cementing the sample to a glass slide and then grinding the rock down until it was thin enough to see through so that the inner structures of geological materials could be examined. The idea of forensic geology started to become popular within the writings of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. That is to say, with the publication of the Sherlock Holmes series between 1887 and 1893. The techniques used by Holmes were never used before the books were written. Most of the techniques used in the series were invented by Doyle, who was also a physician. With another important finder would be George Pop, as Sarah had mentioned. He was a forensic scientist who ran a laboratory in Frankfurt, Germany, who may have been one of the first scientists to use geologic evidence in a criminal case. Pop, a chemist by training, was asked to examine the evidence in a murder case where a seamstress named Eva Disk had been strangled in a bean field with her own scarf. He used collected bits of coal, particles of snuff, and grains of materials, particularly the mineral hornblende as, as his evidence to determine a suspect. Once he had found the suspect, he studied the soils on the suspect's pants, which allowed him to determine where the body of Eva was located. By comparing the soil removed from the trousers of the suspect, Carl Lubach to the minerals at the crime scene, which led him to solving the case. As Sarah explained more in depth, I will touch up about the killer and case of Ted Bundy. As we know, that forensic geologists study the minerals, soil, and anything that comes from the earth. When Ted Bundy's victims were discovered in the forest, they would come and observe closely, looking at their clothing and shoes to see if they noticed anything that came from other possible areas to use for evidence. If they were beaten or killed, then this made it easier for the geologists to determine where. But during this time of the case of Ted Bundy, 
It was difficult for forensic scientists to discover who was the suspect. DNA technology was not as advanced back then as it is now, so this made it more difficult. There were many forensic scientists on this case, and without the teeth marks that Ted Bundy had left behind on the victims, then there would have been more killings. The bodies weren't discovered until months or even a year later. This made it hard to make out who the victim was. This was when forensic entomologists stepped in to help. They examined the insects around on the body. As we know, he confessed to 30 murders and was executed in Florida in 1989, but had hinted that there were more. Now a DNA profile of Mr. Bundy, extracted from a vial of blood discovered in the courthouse, where it had been stored for three decades, may help investigators around the country figure out if he was responsible for any of their unsolved cases. Mr. Kaufman said that his dis- his department began searching for enough DNA to create a profile after being contacted by the police in Tacoma, Washington this year. Detectives there were hoping to solve the case of Anne Marie Burr, an eight-year-old girl who disappeared from her house in 1961. Mr. Bundy was 14 at the time and living in Tacoma promoting speculation that she might have been an early victim. Mr. Bunny denied responsibility for her disappearance. Mr. Kaufman said that he received four or five calls a year from investigators inquiring about Mr. Bundy's DNA in connection with unsolved cases, but that no full DNA profile had been available. His lengthy killing spree, which left bodies scattered across the Pacific Northwest, as well as in Florida and possibly other states, took place well before the advent of DNA technology. A partial DNA profile was created in 2002 from a tissue sample taken at Mr. Bundy's autopsy. Mr. Kaufman said, but it was not complete enough to enter into the FBI database. The call from Tacoma, however, persuaded Mr. Kaufman to persuade the matter further. An effort was made to extract DNA from two dental molds on display with other Bundy Bundy in the Departments of Forensics Laboratory. The impressions taken in the 1970s matched bite marks on the left buttock of a 20-year-old Lisa Levy, one of two students at Florida State University. Mr. Bundy was convicted of killing, but the DNA in the dental molds was too degraded to use for a profile. Eventually, after calling contacts around Florida to see if any evidence still existed that might contain DNA, a vial of blood was found in the evidence vault of Columbia County Courthouse. The blood was then taken in 1978 in connection with the death of 12-year-old Kimberly Leach in Lake City, the third murder Mr. Bundy was convicted of. Gene Miller, the cold case detective in Tacoma Police Department's homicide unit said biological material from the Burr House would be shipped to the state's crime laboratory on Wednesday. If DNA can be extracted, it will be uploaded into the FBI's database. Detective Miller said the primary reason to consider 
Mr. Bundy, a suspect, was that he lived in North End of Tacoma in 1961 and went on to become a well-known serial killer. He noted that in interviews, Mr. Bundy traced his deviant behavior to his early teenage years, and Detective Miller added that Tacoma police have learned other facts in this last year that, if true, makes us even more curious about his potential involvement in this case. Amory Burr disappeared from her bedroom in the early morning of August 31st, 1961. The dining room window was open and there was no sign of forced entry. If DNA from this case turns out to match Mr. Dun- Mr. Bundy's, we'll have taken a huge step forward, Detective Miller said. Even if it does not, it will still be a great step forward because it was finally eliminated him as a suspect. Another case that I will talk about is the hit-and-run case study. This case study involves two suspects that left the scene of a fatal car collision. One of the suspects fled the scene and was chased through a housing complex in a river. He was later seen running down the river bank, running alongside the stone river bank, jumping into the river, and then going up the opposite river bank and disappearing into the adjacent parklands. Two control samples were taken from the alleged crime trail located on the gravel-slash-stone riverbank and in the river channel. Two additional alibi samples were collected from the alibi trail-slash-scene and up the riverbank to determine if the suspect actually had been along the crime trail. The suspect was later apprehended by the police, but denied being along the alleged crime trail. A sufficient amount of soil was recovered from the soles and sides of shoes for forensic soil analysis by gently scraping the fine soil from the shoes using a plastic spatula. The soil analysis mentioned earlier were applied to the hit and run case. The visual comparison of the question samples from the shoe and control samples had remarkably similar color and texture. After analyzing the samples with XRD and DRFIT, it was concluded that the mineralogical and chemical compositions of the soil samples were closely related to one another. It can be determined that their similarity is significant because they both contain quartz, nika, albite, orthoclase, dolomite, chlorite, calcite, and choline. Overall, these comparisons indicate that two samples have a high degree of similarity and are most likely to have been derived from the same general location. In contrast, there is a lower degree of similarity with two alibi souls samples. By using this evidence in trial, the suspect was found guilty of the hit and run by the Supreme Court of South Australia. Thank you for listening to our Forensic Geology podcast, and I hope you are more knowledgeable on geology advancements and the cases we provided to explain how forensic geologists make it happen to either solve a case or find more evidence to lead to solving their cases.